ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Mark Bala started his adult life gallivanting around the world, writing travel guides for Lonely Planet. From Spain to the Maldives and beyond, Mark wined and dined several times a day. He tested hotel beds and hopped between islands on rudimentary fishing boats and the occasional stolen canoe. It was a fun and adventurous life, but the job also opened Mark's eyes to how people are forced to live in other, poorer parts of the world. And then one day, a chance conversation on a train in India led to the great obsession of Mark's life. Toilets. Or more precisely, the appalling fact that millions of people don't have any access to this most basic facility. Just imagine that for a moment. Imagine not having a toilet at your school or work or home. Think what that would mean for your health, your safety and your dignity. Mark's obsession has since earned him the moniker Toilet Warrior, and it's also helped improve the lives of many thousands of people in developing countries, particularly the lives of teenage girls. Hi, Mark. Hi, Sarah. What a fantastic introduction. (laughs) I was trying not to cackle in the background. (laughs) Cackling is welcome. Tell me about that train trip in India. Where were you going? Uh, Yes, I look a little bit of a, a precursor to that. So after my Lonely Planet days were over, I eventually started my own business manufacturing CDs and DVDs. And I sold that business at a good time when it was still an industry worth being a part of, basically. And after selling it, I then joined the board of an Australian Indian joint venture manufacturing DVDs for the Bollywood market. And I was on this particular trip in uh, February 2012. I was in Mumbai for a board meeting and I had a bit of time to spare. So just just hopped on a train to go into the centre of Mumbai for a wander around. And a couple of young guys on the train, uh, who are Fahim and Tasif, who have become great friends of mine, uh, they came up to me and started chatting, wanted to know where I was from. As soon as I said I was uh, Australian, of course, they wanted to talk about cricket. <laughs> it's a great leveller between Aussies and Indians. Um, and uh, after a while, then I started to find out about them. So they were both uh, students at the University of Mumbai, and they lived in a place called Dharavi. Dharavi is it's one of the biggest slums in the world. It's, uh, it's got a population of around a million people and they're all crammed into an area of about two square kilometres. That's a seriously crowded mm. place. And when they told me about this, I remember saying to them at the time, well, it's good you're at university because when you finish and go and get yourselves jobs, you'll be able to afford to move out of the slum. And they both said, oh, no, 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 we don't want to move. This is our home. Um, would you like to come and visit it? It turned out that they'd been toying with the idea of starting a a part-time business to help them through the university days of just taking foreign visitors on guided walking tours through their community. And they started this little business very part-time. It was just the two of them back in those days uh, called Be the Local Tours and Travel. And my first thought when they invited me was, oh, slum tourism, I don't know. It's not got a great reputation. My second thought was, oh, it'd be so interesting to go with a local. So I, I said yes. And my opinion of slum tourism has changed. If it's done properly and respectfully by locals, uh, yeah, amazing. So tell me what happened when you met them to be taken into this slum. Like, what does it look like? Yeah, look, I guess in India, uh, slums are often recognisable by blue tarpaulins, just sort of over, over pretty shabby or half-fallen-down buildings. A lot of corrugated iron narrow, not very well cleaned entrances through the, you know, through the narrow uh, alleyways that go in and so on, and just lots and lots of people. That, that's sort of, it's pretty obvious you're going into an area of Mumbai, for instance, that you would not choose to go in usually. You'd usually go past in a taxi, look in there and say, oh, gosh, I wonder what it's like in there. Did it feel like a dangerous or a, a threatening place? Look, I, I've often said to friends that when these guys invited me to visit Dharavi with them, my first thought was, you know, so long as they don't want my kidneys, I'll be right. <laughs> I've still got both my kidneys, I <laughs> to say. And uh, yeah, I decided, you know, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a punt. I'm going to trust these guys, and I'm so glad I did. But yeah, look, I was a bit nervous at the beginning because I 
I didn't really know what I was getting into. Uh, I didn't see another foreigner there, and I can tell you that if you go back, which I've done a number of times, you go now, there's lots of foreigners wandering around in small groups with with their guides from from various companies. But yeah, I didn't see another one, and there was a lot of staring. Uh, people were you know, not used to seeing foreigners walking around the slum that much at that time. So yes, I certainly felt like I I was not in a place where I would go on my own. And what sort of sights stood out to you? What do you remember noticing? Some of the alleys were so narrow that if you were walking down one and you see someone coming the other way, one of you had to step out of the way to let someone through. And uh, there were others where I felt almost felt a need to sort of walk sideways and you've got to duck your head because of overhanging bits of corrugated iron and so on. But at the same time, I guess Nadavi, unlike many other slums, uh, in India and around the world, Nadavi is reasonably solidly built. A lot of these buildings, you know, they've got proper foundations and some of the houses will have a kitchen and they have an exhaust system of some sort. So not as confronting as some slums might be, but still very confronting. Mm. Your guides took you into a school. There are schools and factories and workshops in this really very dense community. And what, what was that like? They did. The school was actually the last thing we visited and we walked into the school grounds and there were lots of kids playing at the time. It was during a, a break during the day and lots of little boys and little girls and lots of teenage boys. But there were no teenage girls at all. And it really stood out to me because everyone else that you would expect to be in the school was there. And so I asked them what was going on and they told me, well, all the girls had dropped out because the school had no toilets. And my, my reaction at the time was, oh, that's a unusual, it's surprising. And we then we moved on and didn't really talk about it much um, more on that at that time. And it was only later in the day that I started thinking about what it all meant. And why do you think that fact kind of niggled away at you out of all the things you would have seen or, and heard in mm. that trip? Well, my, my own daughter was about 13 at the time. Uh, she was uh, heading into secondary school and looking forward to what might come later. And I guess adolescence is a complicated time for everyone and for girls there are added complications because that's when they start menstruating, of course. So it's a complication that people in developed countries learn to live with because you know, that's just, that's life, you know. And, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a complication. But she didn't have to worry about mm. whether her education would be impacted by the fact that she was now growing into adulthood. That was... Uh, that was a pretty big day. You know, I went back to my the apartment that I'd rented while I was there for the board meeting. The board meeting was on the next day. And so I, I sat home in the apartment that evening, just using Google, just searching for more and more information about the impact of lack of toilets and about the reality of lack of toilets in, first in schools, but then it became clear to me, well, it's not just schools, it's in public squares, it's in homes, it's in, in some parts of the world, even hospitals without toilets and just the extent of this issue, it, it shocked me. Uh, I And I was up all night just researching and reading and I was angry and I, I cried a lot to some of the stuff that, I've, that I came across, you know, stories about in some parts of India, one state in particular, state of Bihar at that time, up to 50% of all the rapes reported in the state happening to girls and women who are outside late at night looking for someone to go to the toilet. Explain uh, that link more to me, Mark, the link between toilet accessibility and sexual assault, because it is such a shocking one that I'd never is. known of. Yeah, and it's it's still, you know, just talking about it now, I can feel the, the hackles rising on the on the back of my neck. It's, so basically because they don't have a toilet at home in some of these communities, and I must tell you now, by the way, a lot's changed in India since that time, still got to improve. But at that time, many communities didn't have toilets in homes. And so, you know, boys and men will go outside against a tree or behind a wall As or the mother of a teenage son, I can attest to the fact that boys <laughs> will urinate in... Anywhere. Anywhere, in extraordinary, even when there's actually yeah. a perfectly good toilet available. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, what about the lemon tree out in the garden? <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere is safe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But, um, but, you know, for girls and women, um, there's no, if there's no toilet and there's no public toilet and there's no toilet at school, no toilet at home or in the workplace, they're restricted as to where and when they can go because going in in public doesn't work the way it does for boys and men. So therefore they wait until after dark 
And if they're going out, you know, just one or two of them together after dark, they're then looking for somewhere quiet and secluded where, where no one can see them. And, of course, that means that they are also unsafe because exactly that, no one can see them. And it's a very, it's an incredibly vulnerable time. You know, you're squatting down to go to the toilet and someone decides to attack you. You're in all kinds of trouble. You know, for most Australians travelling overseas, particularly travelling to the developing world, it brings a new appreciation for all that we can take for granted here. Mm. How old were you, Mark, when you first travelled overseas? So my dad took me to, uh, to a conference in Thailand when I was 10 years old. And then we met up with the rest of the family in Europe a bit later. In fact, that's not quite true. I was born in England, uh, moved out to Australia by the time I was six months old. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a bit a bit about your dad. What do you know about his early life? Yeah, you know, he was born in Budapest in Hungary and he was born at 34. So he spent his childhood running from bomb shelter to bomb shelter during the Second World War. It was a very unstable and insecure time for for anyone in, in Europe at that time, anyone in the world. But Budapest was, was hit pretty hard. Uh, his family lost their home three or four times during the war just because it was hit by bombs. There's one story he used to talk of where 120 people went into a bomb shelter and they were in it for three days and it got hit by a bomb. And there were four survivors, uh, himself, his parents and one other person. Everyone else in the, in the bomb shelter died. And when they came out, they had... He and his parents had two shoes between them. Uh, so his father refused to take either, gave one to his, to my, my grandmother and one to my dad. There was snow on the ground at the time uh, and they had nowhere to go because everyone they knew lived in that same apartment building that had been destroyed. That was, I guess that's his, his early life. And then, then the war came to an end and they... Uh, they went to France, they spent about six months in France and then they went to the US, but eventually they, they found Australia was the place to come to. And what kind of life did your dad build for himself here? Look, I guess uh, not an uncommon story among among migrant Australians, uh, particularly post-war. They're very, very hard-working people with a, uh, with a focus on, on building security. He was a doctor, he specialised in neurology neurology with an N, that is, a nervous system. And, uh, and he was a professor of neurology and he was also a medical director of some hospitals here in Melbourne. Uh, and he was a professor in Hong Kong at one time, in the US at another time, and in Oxford towards the end of his life. Uh, so, yeah. So a, a long life. way, a long way from that bomb shelter as a little <laughs> yes. kid. How did that shape his attitude towards parenting? Like when he took you on that first overseas trip, you were at that time at about the same age as he had been when he was running mm. from bombs in Europe. What did he want to show you? Did he want to keep you safe from the kind of things he'd experienced or did he want to show you the world in, in all of its extremes? Look, I think he was looking to show it in all of his extremes, but he was also, uh, I guess he was also wanting to show us that, you know, that hard work can open opportunities to, to travel, for example, that might not come if you didn't take your studies seriously. And I know it's a bit simplified, but I was not a good student. He caught me a couple of times with, uh, with uh, my, my homework books upside down and a comic stuck between the pages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, he, he did probably instill in me an idea that it's worth putting in effort if you want to do, be able to do something that, that really uh, inspires you. How did he encourage your, your independence on that trip? <laughs> so there were... Uh, probably the, the big one would be uh, we were in Paris uh, where we met up with my mother and sisters and I was the oldest of the three and the three siblings. So we were standing on a platform in the metro in Paris, three or four stations from our hotel and train arrived and my dad said, okay, you hop on, we'll see you at the other end. And I what, just you go solo. Just me on my own, yeah. My, I think they felt my sisters were too young for that. And uh, I sort of did a double take. But he and my mum both nodded and I hopped on and looked back. And this is, I was about 10 years old at the time, looked back and see, uh, see my parents disappearing behind the closed doors. And 
And I carefully counted the stations and I hopped off at the third station and stepped far enough back from where the train stops to feel safe and I stood like a a statue until the next train arrived. And I do remember being relieved when they got off of that. Why would he have done that? What was that about? Um, I guess it was about teaching me to, to take calculated risk. That's probably what it was about. The calculated risk there was that, you know, a child in, in, in the middle of the day in a city that at that time wasn't particularly considered unsafe, uh, because this is 50 years ago, I can't believe it's that long, <laughs> um, uh, I think he was very brave and he did tell me many years later that he was absolutely sweating (laughs) for those seven or eight minutes that we weren't together. (laughs) So with this kind of background and with a father who'd built such a sort of successful medical career, what were the expectations on you after school? So my my grandfather said I was going to be a doctor. Said you were going to be a doctor. Said I was going to be a doctor and I was going to be a doctor. I was absolutely going to be a doctor. And then then I rebelled and said, no, I'll be a lawyer. <laughs> you wild child, Mark Bella. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then, and then a reality set in that I wasn't working hard enough at school and didn't get the results to, to go where I wanted. So I, the next best option was to do a science degree. And so I started a science degree uh, at uh, La Trobe Uni in Melbourne because basically because it was the only one I could get into. My results in finally at school were not good. But then two years into the science degree, I realised I'd didn't want to do science. I wanted to do languages. It was the one thing that had worked for me at school. It was the one subject, German, I spoke, I studied at school and I'd done very well in that. It was the one subject that stood out in my studies and, and in travels that I'd done with my family from age 10 until finishing high school. Language was something that always got me excited. So you switched to linguistics. Where did that yeah. degree lead you? Yeah, so I finished... Um, my honours in linguistics in 1987 and fortunately for me, my supervisor for my honours thesis had just finished writing a a Burmese English phrase book for travellers, which Lonely Planet Publications had bought from him. And he saw that they were advertising, looking for someone to be an editor of their phrase books. So he said to me, look, I've just finished this book and they're looking for someone to edit it and it could lead to editing other phrase books in the future, why don't you apply? So I applied. I, my referee was, was one of their authors. Uh, so, so, that, so, yeah, it helped me get the job. So uh, you got a, a foot in the door at Lonely Planet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then that's how it. did you make the transition from that to actually researching in-country? From the very beginning, after I'd actually got the job and started editing, editing phrase books, I said to Tony Wheeler, who's one of the founders of Lonely Planet and my boss at the time, I said, you know, I belong on the, I belong on the road. That's uh, where I really want to be. I, I travelled a lot prior to starting there. I'd had a couple of years off during my studies at university and, and the road was where I wanted to be. And he, he said to me after about 18 months, oh, just stop hassling me and go and research Spain, would you? <laughs> <laughs> so where, where did you go in Spain? What was the brief on that first trip? Oh, write 100 pages on Spain. Uh, covering a minimum of sixty cities, sixty and three, cities, and you got three, and you got three months to do it. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it was intense. Sixty cities in in three months. Was um, it a, a budget guide? Like were you, were you staying in the cheapest oh, accommodation? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, in fact, uh, I often got stuff for free. I would. Uh, I had a letter from Lonely Planet to let people know what I was doing. The one thing I wasn't allowed to take free was accommodation. But that was mainly youth hostels. But I could, uh, I could get uh, free transport. So the trains and uh, local flights within Spain, car rental, that sort of thing was all free. Uh, entry to museums and uh, that sort of thing was free. I didn't take free food either because they, they were concerned that people might do something special for you if you get it for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if the train people wanted to do something special for me, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your... What was a typical day like on on that trip? What did it involve? I mean, it, for the travellers among us, it sounds like a dream job, but what's it like in reality? Yeah. Look, it, it was a great job. I, you know, I'm so fortunate to have done it, but in the end, it was still very much a job. You know, I'd get up in the morning at 6am and I'd have breakfast somewhere near where I was staying and then I'd walk down the road, find somewhere else 
to have a bit more breakfast and then go somewhere else and have a bit more breakfast. The idea being to, to make sure I was trying more than just one place. Were you having uh, to buy elasticised pants as this trip no, I was went having on? To eat, no, I was having to eat small breakfasts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> um, but then, you know, during the day I'd visit the museums and other tourist sites and I'd check out ho- other hotels and I'd actually go to the trouble of going into the rooms and testing the water pressure and uh, sitting on the bed to make sure the springs weren't broken. And I maybe I got lucky or maybe the hotels got lucky. They never they never showed me a room with broken springs. <laughs> yeah, and then in the in the uh, I'd stop for lunch two or three times as well and then in the afternoon in the evening I'd have uh, two or three different places to have dinner. So I'd you know a bit of dinner in one place, a bit of dinner somewhere else, a bit of dinner somewhere else. And then in the evening I'd do the nightclubs. And then I'd get to bed at two in the morning and back up at six next morning. And it was, it was intense. It's a young man's gig, it sounds. Yeah, it was. And look, my sister was actually travelling in Europe at the time and she and a couple of her friends joined me. And after two days, they said, you're crazy. We're on holiday. And I said, you're crazy for trying to travel with me. You're on holiday. And I didn't see them again. <laughs> well, how long did you travel about the world on behalf of Lonely Planet? It's it six or seven years I was with them. Lots of different countries and uh, some I had to go back to. Like, in fact, if you did a research project like Spain, being their first foray into Spain, you'd, you'd write it, research it, write it, and then go back to update it before publishing. Uh, and then others which are already published previously by other writers, it would be a matter of going in and doing an update. Why was it time to leave when you left? Um, so I'd just finished uh, researching a guide an update on a guide on the Maldives and I came back to Australia. I'd been living in Germany for a few years, based there and travelling from there. And I came back to Australia and I was was about 29, close to 30, and I was thinking, I'm going to be single forever if if I keep this up and I don't want to be single forever. I actually wanted some stability. But I I have to say I had a massive fall from grace. I just thought I'm going to take a full-time job somewhere. I ended up getting a job at uh, at the Department of Social Security, which I guess is called Centrelink <laughs> these days, uh, processing processing doll forms. Uh, Could any of your colleagues job. believe that you'd swapped a life of travelling in Europe no, for processing no. doll forms? I bet no, you couldn't actually, believe it either. <laughs> yeah, and actually I should, I should mention that one of the three partners in Lonely Planet at the time, a guy called Jim Hart, who was... Uh, one of my mentors in my very early in my working life, uh, he did send out a, a comment to everyone saying Mark Ballas decided not to write anymore. He's working for for Department of Social Security, and and I mentioned that because uh, sadly Jim passed away just a few days ago, and even thirty something years later, uh, these people have meant a lot to me. That hmm. whole time with Lonely Planet meant a lot to me. Hmm. Well, yeah. tell me about your last trip, your last hurrah with uh, Lonely Planet to the Maldives. <laughs> that sounds a pretty plum gig. Yeah, well, anyone who's been there will know that you get off the plane and you go to your resort, and when you're finished at your resort, you go back to the plane. Uh, it's not a place that's easy to travel around independently. It's not designed for that. You know, some people will do the day trip to the capital or to another, to a, to a village island, and of course, people do their scuba diving experiences and their sailing experiences and so on. But uh, but I had to move from island to island. I was given a brief. I've got thirty days. I've got to visit thirty islands. So how uh, on earth did you do that? What was your um, mode of transport? I hitched rides on helicopters, uh, on speedboats. I flagged down passing fishing boats and got them to drop me somewhere else. I, in one case, I I was on an island and I rented a kayak just to go for a little paddle and then I paddled to the next island and got them to ring the first island saying, your, your kayak's over here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Your stolen kayak is yeah, here. Yeah, that's right. And and I guess the, the one for me that is, the, there's probably a movie in this somewhere. Uh, I was, I'd arrived on this island with a long jetty and a fishing boat dropped me off there and I got off with my backpack and I'm walking down the jetty and there's, there's all these staff from the hotel running towards me and the fishing, fishing boat's gone already and they're yelling out, go away, go away. <laughs> And uh, I finally, you know, I reached them and they're saying, you can't be here. This is a private resort. Only uh, guests who are booked in are allowed to be here. I said, well, 
explained who I was and they said, we don't care, you've got to get off the island. I said, well, I don't have any transport. And said, well, neither do we, you've got to get off the island. And uh, eventually I convinced them to show me one of the bungalows they had that was empty in the dining area and then they escorted me to the far end of the beach and they pointed to another island six, seven hundred metres away and said, you have to go there. I said, well, can you take me? He said, no, you just go. And I, fortunately I always travel with a big green garbage bag. So I put my backpack in it and tied it up so it's full of air and I used it as a raft uh, to, to paddle across this little bit of the Indian Ocean. Um, and it was probably not very deep, three or four metres at that stage and very clear. I could see all the stingrays on the bottom. And uh, and I reckon I was halfway across. It was probably a, you know, it was a half hour paddle. It's not Even though it's not far, it's a, it takes a while paddling on a on a bag full of air. And uh, halfway across, I'm looking around thinking, if I disappeared here, no one would know for months. Because there's no mobile phones out there or anything at that time. So, so yes, that was an interesting experience. So I was imagining Tony Wheeler ringing my mother three months later saying, you know, we've we've lost contact with Mark. He's gone down (laughs) on his backpack in the Indian (laughs) Ocean. Yes, if they'd ever found me, yes. (laughs) Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Who did you meet a few months after that visit to the Dharavi slum? I was back in India for another board meeting and in my research about uh, about toilets, I'd come across people in India involved in this space as well. And one guy, Swapnil Chaturvedi, lived in a town called Pune, which wasn't all that far from where my board meetings were. And so I reached out to him and he's known in his community as the poop guy for uh, for amazing work that he's been doing bringing sanitation to, to slum dwellers in his community. And I thought, I'd like to meet this guy. So... We went out to this little village. It was about 300 people, a couple of hours by road from Pune. And in the village, there was a little school, a primary school, with about 25 kids in the school. And there was one teacher, a young woman who's about 25 years of age. And the school didn't have a toilet. And this is why Swapnil took me there. He wanted to show me what it's like in the real India, the bits that the tourists don't get to. And so we're chatting with this teacher and he was, Swapnil was, translating for me and I asked her how she managed if there's no toilet there and she she told me that she lived in another village about two hours away by bus so she traveled to work on the bus every morning and she'd work all day and then she'd travel home on the bus two hours at the end of her day of work and the first thing she'd do when she got back home would be have a big drink of water and I thought about that for a moment so she's telling me she'd go the entire day without drinking water even in the heat of Indian summer, just because she was afraid she might need to go to the toilet and she didn't have anywhere to go. And so sort of getting my head around this and then I asked, well, how do you manage when you've got your period? And she said, well, the the children don't go to school on those days. Would she stays at home? Yeah, well, she didn't have a toilet. She didn't have anywhere to to change her pad. She had no way of of dealing with it if if she needed to change her pad during the day at school. So she didn't go to school. And this, it's still, it just, this story is, is still so raw for me, even though it's 2012, you know. So, so I thought about this for a bit longer, you know. She's staying home when she's got a period. So what this means, of course, is that children's education is being curtailed every time she has a period. The mothers of the children have to stay home from work, and they're all on day wages. They have to stay home from work to look after the children, every time this young woman had her period, which meant, of course, family incomes are being impacted. And the whole community knew every time she had a period. So, you know, her, her privacy and dignity are being smashed and everyone in the community is paying the price. And uh, I, I said to Swapnil, the guy who had taken me, I said, I, we've got to do something about this. I can't leave this place without seeing if we can do something to improve their situation. And now he, he knew a lot more about toilets than me at the time. He said, look, we're not looking for a perfect solution, are we? We're looking for something to improve the lot of these people. He said, how about we build one toilet with a wash basin at the school and see if it makes a difference? Because it's only primary kids 
And one young woman as a teacher said, you know, it's, it's not perfect. Ideally, you want separate male-female toilets in, in a pretty conservative society, but let's try this. And he said he could, he could arrange to build it for about a thousand Australian dollars. And so I, I gave him half from my pocket on the spot. And he said he'd cover the rest. And uh, he, he called me up about three months later. He said, Mark, I've got a message for you from, from the teacher. Uh, she wants you to know that uh, the first thing she does when she gets to school now is have a big drink of water. <laughs> uh, that's probably that's close to the best phone call I've ever had in my life. <laughs> And uh, and then he said, and also the previous month, the teacher had said the previous month was the, the first time since she'd started working at the school that she'd been able to go to work every day. Mm. So kids so are back at school full-time, mums are back at work full-time, so their family incomes are up. Nobody knows when this teacher's got her period because there's nobody else's business. The whole community benefited. We spent $1,000 and transformed a community of 300 people. That was the moment when there was a big aha for me. Because I realised, well, it's not just toilets, it's all the other stuff that goes with it. For instance, not drinking water during the day is so bad for you. And, you know, so this woman's now, we're improving her health through that simple change. Plus, the kids have access to water during the day. But I can now tell you as well, the rest of that village, they've all now put toilets in their homes since. It's just, yeah, I, I get very emotional. This story is one of one of many that... Uh, that upsets me but makes me feel so good at the same time. You then found yourself not long after at the World Toilet Summit. Who runs mm. that? What is it? Yeah, so a man who's become a, a great friend of mine, Jack Sim, he's, uh, he's a Singaporean businessman who found himself in a, in a position where he was able to dedicate his life to something that was never going to pay him an income. And uh, he had a bugbear about toilet cleanliness. Singapore is a pretty clean town, but he had found some of the public toilets in Singapore were not up to scratch. And so, so he started uh, uh, the um, Singapore Toilet Organisation. Then he took it further and he actually got involved in founding the WTO. Uh, the WTO? Which in, which in his case is the World Toilet Organisation. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's quick to point out that it's just a, just as shitty an organisation as a better known WTO. Um, and so Jack started the the World Toilet Organization, and then he decided to run a summit, and then he ran another and another, and he kept getting people, other toilet-obsessed people from around the world saying, yeah, we want to come to that. We'll pay We'll pay, pay to be part of this event. And the, the one I went to was in late 2013. It was a really important visit for me because it sort of, it made me realise how many other people around the world have found this cause and found a need to be mm-hmm. part of solving this terrible issue. With these wonderful toilet mad people. Um, <laughs> is toilet humour <laughs> acceptable at the toilet summit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's part and parcel. And, and look, I, I've got to tell you that ever since I decided to go, uh, my friends back here have been taking the piss. Yeah, the idea that I even wanted to be part of this toilet world. <laughs> uh, but, you know, my life's been in the toilet ever since and I, I think it's, there's no better place to I think to I'm going to have to call time. We're, we're going to do an intervention because I can just see this okay. derailing the rest of our time oh, okay, together. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Mark right. Bella. laughs> well, you know, given some of the information that was shared at that toilet summit, I'm not surprised in a way that you needed to lighten the mood because... Share with us some of the some of the more shocking facts around toilets and sanitation that were being discussed at that summit. Yeah, look, aside from the, that uh, issue I talked about before about personal security and risk of sexual assault, one of the the most emotionally traumatizing discoveries for me was the the impact on children under the age of five when they are growing up in an area that doesn't have proper sanitation. Is as soon as you don't have proper toilets, people are obviously going outside. So we call it open defecation. So people are just pooing in the fields, basically. And if it rains, that all gets washed into the waterways, which means that the drinking water, which if they don't have proper toilets, they don't have proper filtering systems either. Um, it kind of part and parcel. It suggests that it's a community that just hasn't taken that next step along their water sanitation hygiene journey. And what it means, of course, is that people are drinking water contaminated with, with human waste. And children under the age of five, their systems are not as robust as, as older people, like older children and adults. 
And so the risk of, of death for children under the age of five is very high. And in many parts of the developing world, as many as 5% of children don't reach the age of five, with mm. poor sanitation being one of the major factors. There are other factors, other diseases that come into play, but poor sanitation is one of the major factors. I actually visited a, a community in Cambodia not long after the World Toilet Summit, and 9% of the children there were dying before the age of five from drinking contaminated water or being impacted by diseases that were so often connected with unclean water. When you're talking about a, a good toilet or, or proper sanitation in terms of toilets, what are you talking about exactly? Because it's not that every toilet in the world has to look like a Western enamel upright no. system, does it? What are, what are the essential elements? Well, number one is keeping human waste away from food and water, from the food and water supply that we, that, you know, food that we eat and water that we drink. And so the most basic version will be like a pit. So there are communities oh, yeah. that don't even have just the pit. Like that's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They hadn't thought of it because you know, to, to decide that you need to keep human waste away from people, first you need to understand the link between human waste and disease. Now, if you're in a community where literacy levels are low, where many people don't have much more than a very basic primary education, nobody's told you that there's a link between human waste and disease. Now, we know it because our mums taught us to wash our hands and to brush our teeth and to flush the toilet when you're done and all that sort of stuff. But when you've never been taught by anyone, it's, it's actually not obvious. Mm. Like, you know, I mean, um, until someone tells you that this stuff is dangerous, uh, all we know is it doesn't smell nice. Mm. And, that's, and so there is that natural thing, it doesn't smell nice, keep away from it. That's biologically, perhaps one of the reasons it, it doesn't smell nice, although I'm not a biologist. I got two-thirds of the way through my biology degree, but we didn't talk about poo at the time. <laughs> but, you know, first thing is keep keep it away from food and drinking water. Uh, but that's, that's only the first step. For it to be a good toilet, you also have to have a management system. And so, for instance, composting is a great management system. Uh, septic tanks that are, that are well looked after, that have the right bacteria in, is a good management system. And sewage plants are a good management system. But just filling a pit with human waste and then covering it is not a great management system. It's better than doing nothing, but it's not a great management system. So as you're learning this sort of information and getting in touch with other people who have been thinking about it and, and working to change it, does it start taking over your life, Mark? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd come back from my trips to India and I'd go to business meetings because I was still in business at the time. I go to business meetings and drinks evenings and that, and I would just talk toilets, 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 and and <laughs> nobody told me to stop. Everybody was listening. Everybody was interested to hear more. Uh, so much so that a couple of friends uh, here in Melbourne one day said, "Okay, stop talking about it. Let's do something about it." Basically, sat me down and said, "We need to do something about it, not just talk about it." And so we, we need to shut you we... up, Mark Valor, and ah, do something. No, exactly <laughs> no. the opposite. They wanted me talking more, <laughs> but with with more defined purpose, not just telling the story. But okay, you know what you did with a thousand bucks in India in that little village. What if we could do something bigger? And so we started a little charity of our own called We Can't Wait, uh, <laughs> which we thought was a pretty cool name. And it, uh, because the nice thing about that name, apart from can't wait to get to the toilet, it was also going to be good for other issues in the developing world. We can't wait to get the rubbish off the streets. We can't wait to get kids into school for longer. So many good things could come from that simple name. And uh, so we started it and uh, I did my first public talk at my daughter's school. Not long after we started We Can't Wait. And it was very raw. I was absolutely terrified. There was a bunch of 15, 16-year-old girls. It's a tough uh, crowd. Tough crowd. And uh, at the end of the talk, the headmistress took me aside. And th it was a couple of days later, actually. She took me aside when I was back picking my daughter up from school. She said, just wanted you to know that the girls were absolutely astonished by what they heard. But the, one of the things that shocked them so much was that you're not their doctor, you're not their father, and you're not their biology teacher, and yet you said the word period <laughs> as a man. And that, that was, uh, and I was nervous talking about that then, but now I've just realised, well, mm. I haven't got time to be nervous mm. about it. Mm. It's too important. I mean, it's, the reality is it's, 
it's something that happens to human beings. Obviously, it's to human beings born female that it happens to, but without it, none of us exist. And the reality is we need to, we need to just stop, stop being all nervous and uncomfortable talking about it. So with these friends, as you're, you're talking about it and you're um, yep. getting other people on board, what, what did you decide to do practically with We Can't Wait? Yeah, so look, it was around a similar sort of time, late 2013, uh, sort of maybe just after the World Toilet Summit, we'd raised a little bit of money through the talk with the girls' school. In fact, that led that led to a, a trivia night. Some of the girls said, let's put on a trivia night. And they raised money selling cakes and whatever around the school. Then they had families, six or seven tables of families for the trivia night, and they raised $1,800 on the evening. And the girls were very excited handing that over to me. And then one of the dads came up to me as the girls were packing up and said, this is an incredible story. Uh, I've got a family business that has some money that we need to give away. Could you use (laughs) (laughs) $10,000? And and this just, again, just made me realise the potential for this and who you're going to reach, you never know, which is why you've got to get out there and tell the story. You can tell the story to a thousand people, but you only need one who's going to say, this is what I want to be part of. And you can make massive impact. So that then led into, okay, so what's next? And I was in India on business and this was another watershed moment here. I'd been to the World Toilet Summit and I was in India on business and I'm sitting down with a business colleague there. We were having trouble with the factory that I was managing in the DVD business. And this guy had been introduced to me as someone who knows how to deal with union problems. At the beginning of our talk, I sat down, bit of small talk, and I said, can you believe that there are schools in your country without toilets? And he nodded and said, yeah, I want to know about that. Because my Rotary Club has a relationship with the school that needs toilets. And uh, I'm glad he didn't run away at my reaction because I was very excited and blabbering. And I was, oh, what's, that, what's that all mean? But I was also thinking at the time, Rotary, isn't that a mob of people who do sausages outside Bunnings? <laughs> I had no idea what they did. I, and I never thought about the organisation. And I, I guess if someone said, what do you think they do with the money? I guess I, would, I don't know. They pay for their social meetings. I, I don't know. Because like so many volunteer-based organisations, they, they don't want to make a fuss. They don't, want to, they don't want to show off. They want to just quietly get on with doing their job. But if they're too quiet about it, nobody knows. So, so I've become the noisy one. <laughs> I'll talk shit to anyone who's willing to listen. <laughs> um, so what, you got in, in touch with your local Rotary Club or what happened? Yeah. yeah. So this guy in, in India, Fados, he said, look, why don't you go to a Rotary Club in Melbourne and just offer yourself as a guest speaker. And so I'm, I'm a member of, well, I was a member of the Box Hill Golf Club in Melbourne at the time and I was at the club paying my fees for the year and I noticed a sign in the, the dining room just next to me that the Rotary Club of Box Hill Central meets here. And at that moment the doors opened and people started pouring out and I, I went up to this guy who was in a suit and said, look, I've got a story, I'm told you'd like guest speakers. And he said yes and... Uh, not long after I was a guest speaker, but I didn't know at the time he was also their uh, uh, membership director and a very slick operator, and I, I never had a chance. <laughs> and uh, but Bruce, did he did a good thing there on that day. He uh, So he convinced me to, to join up, and the club loved the story of We Can't Wait so much that it started its own project called Operation Toilets, which has actually since absorbed uh, We Can't Wait because two organisations doing the same thing run by the same person didn't really make sense. And then together we went back to my friend Fados in India and said, let's put these toilets into the school. So it was a school of 500 kids and needed 15 toilets. And it was about a $15,000, $16,000 cost to build them. My friend Fados's club in India put some money in. We Can't Wait put some money in. And my new Rotary Club put some money in. And together we funded this project. So that, that was the start. What's happened the over start? the last 10 years? Whew. You know, that was, that was to reach 500 kids. Just bear with me a moment. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm, I'm uh, fortunate that this thing moves me so much because if it didn't, I wouldn't have the energy to keep doing it. it it's, very, it's very taxing uh, working in an environment where people are suffering and you know you can't help them all. But being able to help some means a lot. So since uh, since starting with that first little project with the one toilet, one teacher and 25 kids, then this first 
proper project where we put 15 toilets in to change the world for those 500 kids. That's now grown into a series of projects funded by people all over the world. By the end of the next project, which is currently in development, we will have had direct impact, be close to 200,000 kids wow. by, the, by, the end of, by the end of 24, beginning of 25. But it's, it's actually so much bigger because, of course, going back to that simple project with the 500 kids and 15 toilets, that was in 2015. And, of course, all the kids at that school have moved on and more kids have come in. So it's nine years. We reckon that about two to two and a half thousand kids have had access to just those toilets. And those toilets have still got another five years life in them before they might need replacing. So it's going to be three, three and a half mm. thousand just from that first little project. But if you then extrapolate on the toilets we've worked on since then, it's got to be seven, eight hundred thousand at least plus the broader impact on the communities. This flows on to much broader community impact. And just um, that, uh, the, the education story around hygiene too, I guess, if those kids are learning about washing their hands, they tell their families about it, I guess. Of course they do. And in fact, that really pleased you mentioned that now because toilets are actually, they're a small component of what this is really about. I mean, the toilets are, they're the physical manifestation of the work, if you like, and they are the critical infrastructure that's required. But but without the education program, without someone to teach you to wash your hands like your mum taught you to wash your hands, why are you going to do it? So there's that education component. So our projects in all the schools we work in also include rolling out a, a WASH education program. WASH is water and sanitation and hygiene. And uh, without that program being built into it, you, you're going nowhere. And in fact, I can tell you our single biggest project to date was a, in a community not far from Delhi, about a $250,000 US dollar project reaching 18,000, 20,000 kids. 75% of that money went into the education program. We had a partner helping roll out the education program and the deal was that they would visit each of the schools in this reasonable-sized project. They would visit each of them twice a week, every week for two years because that's how hard it is to change people's behaviour. We all know that changing behaviour is hard. I mean, anyone, anyone in Australia who is old enough to remember, say, around 1970, Seatbelts were, comp- were not compulsory in this country in 1970, and then they came in and all the efforts by government to get people wearing seatbelts and so on. Even today, 3% of people in Australia don't wear a seatbelt. That's 53 years later, 54 years later. It's that hard to change people's behaviour. So you imagine an environment where you're trying to change people's behaviour, but you're not finding them. Like, we find people in Australia and if they we, don't wear a seatbelt. And our cars beep at us if we don't wear right, a seatbelt. That's right, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> In India or in anywhere in the developing world, you don't get fined for not using a toilet. Mm. So we're trying to get people to change behaviour through positive reinforcement. That's much harder. Mm. And this is why schools are so important for us because schools are places of learning. And if you can teach kids to change their behaviour, if they're taught by someone they respect and they see the reason, the kids become the most incredible agents for change in the, in the broader community. Mark, you mentioned your friendships and connections with some wonderfully named characters such as Mr. Toilet <laughs> and the Poop Guy. What's yep. your moniker in this world? <laughs> so, yeah, I was very lucky uh, as we were getting close to completing our first project. Someone told a local Indian community magazine in Melbourne about the work that we were doing and they contacted me and said that they wanted to interview me, write an article, and they wrote the article and then they called me up and said, we've got some copies for you, do you want to come and pick them up? And I turned up at their office thinking it's going to be it's a half-page article, would it be lovely? And I turned up and I'm on the front cover of the magazine um, with the moniker Toilet Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was a, a three or four-page article about uh, about what we were doing. That, that was the headline. What were you, how were you posed in that photograph? <laughs> so they'd taken a whole lot of photos when they were doing the, the interview for the, the article and Something I didn't know at the time, but they told me is if you put your, your hand up and just raise your little finger in India, that means I need to go to the toilet. And so they got a photo of me standing in front of my garage roller door, with, <laughs> just with the little finger up. And uh, that, that that's become my salute in India since, you know. <laughs> anytime I visit a school over there, I've learned a few words of Hindi, not much, unfortunately, but anytime I visit a school over there, I'll introduce myself to the kids as the toilet warrior and they think it's the funniest thing they've ever heard. <laughs> that um, little gesture, of course, has a has a different yeah. meaning in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> my mother-in-law told me that it, in Australia it means you've got a little one. <laughs> uh, that was um, no comment. 
this work or this, um, I mean, do you call it work? Do you call it your mission? How do you think about this involvement oh, over the last 10 years? It's, it's the best job I've ever had. It's, uh, it's, it's an expensive job. You know, I've uh, funded all my own travel and Rotary doesn't pay anything. I've had, I had one big conference in the US where they paid for my flights and accommodation and food while I was there. And that was only because I was able to find them a $700 return ticket, which obviously you couldn't find today. <laughs> that's the um, Lonely Planet editor still still that, in you. That's right, still in me, that I'm going to get a good deal on travel. <laughs> I might have by... to go via Antarctica and Auckland, <laughs> but I'll get there. There were Yeah, there are a few stops on the way, but that was all right, because every, every stop I found a Rotary Club to talk at. Um, but that And that particular visit actually ended up raising about $80,000 mm. for perhaps three and a half, four hours of speaking. So... When you're working in fundraising and not putting anything in your own pocket, it's raising money is really easy because there's no, there's nothing selling the waters. There's no, oh, but he's keeping X percent for himself. So not to say there's anything wrong with that. I mean, the reality is most people need an income. And I found myself in a very fortunate position where I don't need to rely on this to be able to support myself and to be able to live. Has it changed you in other parts of your life? Like would your friends and family say you're a different kind of person in any way since delving into this world and, yeah, and it taking um, up so much of your time? I think I'm, I'm happier. I'm more, more content in my life, no doubt. I was talking about someone just recently that in a, in a sense it's a bit like at Christmas time when you're a little kid getting presents, it's so exciting, but you come to a time in life where giving them is perhaps even better. This is kind of a variation of that on steroids. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had this opportunity that these people that we work with have allowed us into their lives and into their communities to be able to bring this critical change to their worlds. And it's really not about, it's not about trying to say, oh, you need to be more like us in the West. We're not trying to change cultures, except truly dangerous cultures like defecating in the open. But that doesn't change Hinduism, for example. It doesn't change whether you pray or not. It doesn't change mm. all that stuff. All it's doing is saying, well, let's keep you healthy. Mm. That's all it's about, to keep you healthy. I've loved hearing about this work that you're doing. All power to you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.